scripture reading from the Song of Solomon is kind of a tricky deal. I don't know if I can remember uh, a time in uh, the 30-some-odd years I've been involved in ministry that I have dealt with such divergent themes in, in one Sunday. Uh, Sunday morning, the heaviness of Job. Sunday night, Song of Solomon. And marital love. <laughs> uh, we are going to be looking at this book, and I want us to pray uh, about it before we get into it. So I'm going to ask you to, uh, to bow your heads with me, and that's ask God to, uh, to bless us. Father, we recognize the greatness of your voice as it comes to us from these texts. We want so very badly to have ears to hear it and eyes to see it, Father. To hear and to see in the ways that Your Word can transform us and draw us closer to You and impact our lives in such radical ways, Father, that we're not the same. Your Word is a living sword. It is alive. And it does, Father, cut to the very center and core of who we are. Thank You for it. Thank You for this precious gift. And tonight, Father, as we, we think about uh, this, this, uh, this short book in the, the wisdom section of the Old Testament, what we're asking of You tonight, Father, is for us to, to be blessed in our attention and in our study and in our thinking and in our application of it, Father, in ways that it brings glory to You. Thank You, Father, so much for this church. And thank You so much for the ways that You bless us not only in Your presence, but in the presence of each other and the way that our fellowship is, is, is beautiful and meaningful and significant. The relationships that we have built here, Father, in friendship, how it blesses our lives in the valleys and the mountaintops, on the mountaintops and on the plains. Father, thank You so much for all of these blessings that we have in Christ, especially the grace that comes to us and saves us. Thank you so much for that. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin uh, with a, a quote uh, from C. Hasselt Bullock, who has written sort of extensively, has uh, uh, several volumes of, of writings on the Old Testament. In fact, writings on just about all of the books of the Old Testament. He, he writes in his book on um, uh, uh, the, the, the poetic wisdom literature, he says, Underlying the Song of Songs is the basic loyalty of woman to man and man to woman and the mutual interdependence they enjoy. It's about intimacy and the special uh, byproducts of that intimacy that come in marriage. The Song of Solomon, though, and the kinds of things that it celebrates in terms of, of, of marriage is, is foreign thinking in the modern world. The ancient Hebrew mind, the ancient Hebrew mind could no more isolate and alienate the sexuality of, of, of man and, and woman from God than he con could conceive of, of a self-made man cut loose from the presence of God, that this man is self-made, that he, he operates on his own and he creates on his own and he owes nothing to God. 
that the Hebrew mind could not conceive of separating man and any aspect of his experience from the presence of God. Yet, the modern man, the Western man, has become overly enamored with his abilities and intellect. He has arrived at the point where he believes that he understands himself completely in terms of the material world and how he comprehends the universe. And because of that, he thinks of himself as sophisticated. Yet a sign of his spiritual poverty is that he has turned sensual pleasure into the highest good. That's why we need this book. To remind us the place that God, that the great place, the high place that God has placed it in human relationships between a husband and a wife. It, it, one of the reasons we need this book is that it brings sensual human pleasure back under the auspices of the faith and the biblical voice. Song of Solomon speaks to us. I want to give you, before we jump into um, uh, three or so points on, on that will help us get us mind around this book, I want to give you sort of the history of the interpretation. There have been a lot of ways that scholars have begun to uh, look at this book and have tried to interpret it and to understand it and to understand its place in the entire uh, Old Testament and New Testament, the canon of the Bible itself. And uh, I, I won't go through all of these, but I want to give you three. I want to give you two that are most uh, that that most uh, writers will at least address, and then I want to give you the third one, which is is where we're going to be tonight, and the one that I agree with most. The first is allegorical. Uh, you've heard me talk about Rabbi Akiva. He was a martyr around 135 BC uh, 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 AD or so. Uh, he was the one that uh, was uh, reciting the Shema as the Romans were were uh, flogging his body with their iron combs in, in an execution. And uh, Rabbi Akiva was the first one to kind of look at the Song of Solomon as an allegorical statement on the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament. And then when you look at the Targums, the, uh, uh, the, uh, you know, the writings of the Old Testament and a commentary on it in other languages, you begin to see that it begins to go off into some allegory. And it, it, although it was the first Jewish thinkers to begin to look at this book in terms of allegory, the Song of Solomon eventually was considered you know, allegorical to, the, to represent God or Christ and the church. And so by the time you get to, you know, from the Jewish thinkers who began to think about it in an allegorical sense, to the Christian thinkers who began to see it allegorically as a connection between Christ or God and the church, you begin to see, you know, the Song of Solomon placed in, in sort of a, uh, you know, kind of taken out of its, its context and put into a more spiritualized meaning. Now, th there are some objections to this. The main objection is that if Solomon is really the king, he is hardly a good candidate to represent God or Christ in the Song of Solomon and his relationship to the church. You'll remember in 1 Kings chapter 11, that there's this commentary on the spiritual life of Solomon that basically says that his heart was not wholly or truly devoted to God. Hardly a good candidate to represent God or Christ in the relationship to the church. Another objection is that are we really talking about two characters, the king and the maiden, or are we talking about three where a shepherd and a king and the maiden come together in this book? So the allegorical interpretation of this book has kind of gone by the wayside in most of the more recent studies. Uh, a second is the, the typological. 
And typology is not a whole lot different from allegory, except that when you're doing uh, a typological interpretation of the Song of Solomon, what you're looking for is a specific event or a relationship in history. And where uh, this goes in the earliest days of its interpretation is that this is Solomon's marriage to Pharaoh's daughter, and it doesn't represent God or Christ and the church, but it represents Christ's union to the Gentiles. Now, again, you have you know, some of the same objections uh, in, in the methodology to, with what you find with the allegorical interpretation. You find that also with this one. And, and quite frankly, no one even agrees on what the, the historical event is that in this mode of interpretation is represented here. So I, uh, the typological, the allegorical, not really the, the interpretations of the Song of Solomon that I think are legitimate and really not a, a part of, of our use of it tonight. The third is literal. The book celebrates the virtuous love between man and woman and there is no reason to think that such a book that talks about these kinds of things should not be an inspired part of the Bible. Who had, in all of history, who had the very first thought about the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman? God. God created it, God designed it, and it is God that orders it. This book helps us to see the strong force that is that sexual love, that 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 uh, that... that uh, a physical pleasure that is in marriage in that kind of light. That God has created it, that God is the one that ordains it, and He is the one that has designed it. Now, uh, three teachings on marital love that I think that we get out of this book. And so when you go to read Song of Solomon on your own, be thinking about these couple of themes, and it will help you you know, kind of make sense of, of the poetry. And, and the Song of Solomon is basically you know, several chapters of poetry that talks about this kind of relationship between a husband and a wife. The first is the blessing of marital love. The Song of Solomon celebrates uh, in, in some very lyrical but very delicate language the ecstasies and delights of sexual love in marriage. Solomon comes to marriage with a young woman and in this text in, in chapter 3, it looks like his wedding day. The text says, Who is this coming up from the wilderness like a column of smoke? Perfumed with myrrh and incense made from all the spices of the merchant. Look, it's Solomon's carriage, escorted by sixty warriors, the noblest of Israel, all of them wearing the sword, all experienced in battle, each with his sword at his side, prepared for the terrors of the night. King Solomon made for himself the carriage. He made it of wood from Lebanon. Its posts he made of silver, its base of gold. Its seat was upholstered with purple, its interior inlaid with love. Daughters of Jerusalem, come out and look. You daughters of Zion, look on King Solomon wearing a crown. The crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day his heart rejoiced. The author, again, you know, writes throughout this book in, in lyrical language, the celebration of the joys of love. Again, it's not in lyrical language, it's in poetry. And, it's, and it's, it's making us stop 
you, you know, if you write, if, if, if you read any, any kind of a manual where the language is very concrete and the language is, 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 is not abstract in the sense, you're not, you know, you're basically not caused to pause at any, at any point and to ponder and to think and to meditate and to try, I mean, that's why the Bible gives us metaphors, and that's why uh, the, the Bible gives us uh, examples and parables. It is to get our sanctified imagination working and to ponder these great truths. And when we read this poetry, we think about its imagery, we think about what it is that Solomon is trying to express in this book about the celebration of the joys of love. It's poetry. And he's trying to lift us up out of the mundane and out of the earthy and to see it from the vantage point of heaven. And so he says in chapter 1, you know, that this wedding, this, this relationship, this commitment to this woman, this love is as intoxicating as wine. That this woman in chapter 2 is like a beautiful rose or a lily. Uh, going back to chapter 1, this love is like a fragrant perfume that overwhelms the senses. Love in, in chapter 2 is a, as delightful as, as eating fruit. Now, if you were to think about it, uh, you, you know, there were not the same kinds of sweets that we have today. I mean, you just couldn't go out to some Hebrew H-E-B and get you a box of, of Snickers. I mean, what, what Solomon is saying here is that this, this love is as delightful as eating, you know, chocolate. Or eating something that is sweet and just, you know, exhilarates our senses. He says in chapter 2, the joy of love is like the arrival of spring after a dreary and a cold winter. The clouds part, the sun comes out, the rains in, and the flowers and the fig trees begin to bloom. And in chapter 4 and in chapter 6 and in chapter 7, uh, the, the king himself is dazzled by the beauty of the woman that he calls his beloved. He says in chapter 4, verse 7, you are altogether what? Beautiful, my darling. There is no what? No flaw in you. This dude is smitten. There is no flaw in you. I love it. Well, not only are, the, are there the, the, the blessings of marital love that are found throughout the writings and all of the chapters and the scriptures of this, but also the virtues of a maiden's virginity. Uh, the, the Bible, and one example of this, I, I, you know, if you want to uh, do some reading, is Deuteronomy chapter 2 that teaches that sexual love is reserved for marriage where there is a commitment for life together. Commitment together for life. That's made in front of witnesses and especially God as a witness. And therefore, waiting to experience that marital love and that physical pleasure with your spouse is a virtue. Now, in, in chapter 4, Solomon is longing for his bride to come to him. He, he is longing for his, he and his bride to be together. And he says, beginning in verse 10, he says, How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine. And the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and, and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Now, in, in the language of, of, of poetry and in the language of metaphor, the very end of that particular text, uh, Solomon is, is lifting up the, the, the virtue of his, his beloved's virginity. 
And yet, as you, as you go through the text and continue into the next couple of chapters, this young woman is both fearing the loss of that virginity as, as well as she's longing for the marriage. She, she longs for her husband. She wants to be with her husband. But she fears, fears the surrendering of, of her virtue. And chapter 5 describes the wedding night in, in some, 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 some very uh, exalted language describes that wedding night and also describes, and I think in some very tender language, the reluctance that sometimes appears on that night. Now what this book is doing is taking very seriously this subject. That, that marriage and the loss of that virginity, that virginity that is given to the husband, these things are irrevocable and because they're irrevocable, they should not be taken lightly. That is why marriage is something that should never be rushed into by two people who have not made these wholehearted commitments to one another before witnesses and have committed themselves for life to each other. And one of the reasons, quite frankly, that that, that immor- uh, immoral uh, aspect of some relationships, why it's so destructive, is that it warps love and the definition of love and the experience of love and even the limits or the distance of that love. A sexual experience before marriage where vows for complete commitment are made for each other for life says, I mean, if, if it's that immoral sexual, a sexual relationship before marriage kind of a relationship, what is happening there is that one is saying to the other, I love you to this point. I love you to here, but no further. The ultimate commitment to each other has not been made. And the sexual experience before the marriage is saying, basically, I love you to this point, but no further. And so there's the, the, the blessedness or the bliss of marital love. There's the virtue of the maiden's virginity. And then he also, in this book, talks about the nature of love. The Song of Solomon is more than just a theology of marital pleasure. And, and even if you don't like poetry, and if, even if you're not very sensitive to the, to the wording of poetry, you don't have to read the Song of Solomon very deeply or, or very profoundly to get an understanding of what he's talking about throughout that book. The Song of Solomon, though, contains much more than just a, 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 a description of that physical pleasure. It very much contains a theology of what love between a husband and a wife is like. Note these words near the end of the book in chapter 8. Place me like a seal over your heart. Like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. Love's strength in this particular part of of the text is compared to death, which seems kind of a weird thing. But as you know, death as a force is really unstoppable to human beings. There's nothing that we can do that can stop death from visiting us or visiting our loved ones. And love's strength in Solomon's poetry and Solomon's thinking is as strong as death. That nothing can destroy that kind of love between those who are willing to surrender everything for the sake of the one they love. 
But that kind of love, when two people have made the commitment, I know what you need and I'm willing to give it. And the other one is saying, I know what you need and I'm willing to give it. To my sacrifice, to my laws, I'm going to give you what you need. That kind of love, when it's experienced between, between two people, is, is transforming. That's the kind of love that fortifies a person when they go through some kind of suffering or adversity or tragedy. It's that kind of love that transforms. You know, one of the things that we say, in fact, we say it some in this Fight Less, Love More uh, class, is the best way to get a better spouse is by being a better spouse. And that's really what some of the things that Solomon is talking about here, that this kind of love that is as strong as, as death comes into a person's life and helps fortify them for all of life and transforms the way that they look at life and their pleasure in life when they have committed to each other in this kind of way. And you know as well as I do that before marriage we have not committed ourselves to one another completely for life in a way where we expose ourselves, our virtues and our flaws. Our, our character strengths and our character defects to another human being in a way where that love completes us. And to experience love in the context of who we truly are is indeed transformative. And that, in essence, is what the Song of Solomon is all about. It's about the greatness of the relationship between a husband and a wife. The greatness of the blessedness that comes when two people are married and they have given themselves to each other. When a woman has offered the, the, the gift of her, of her, the virtue of her virginity to a husband and they have kept, and the man as well, and they have kept themselves pure for that night, that relationship, that experience for the rest of their lives. And to understand from Solomon's standpoint, from the wisdom of Solomon, that the nature of love is more than just the sexual relationship. There's more to it than that. It is the kind of love that accepts, that comes into a person's life and transforms them and in and, 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 and many respects you know, fortifies them against all of the bad things that could happen to them in life. They're never alone. And it's a reminder when you think about all of the ways that Solomon talks about the greatness and the strength of that relationship that is between a husband and wife, that it's only a taste of the kind of strength that is in the relationship that we find with God through Jesus of Nazareth. Tonight, uh, we're going to invite some of our shepherds uh, to come up here to the front as we're singing this next song. And if there are ways that we can help introduce you to, to Jesus and to talk to you about the ways that you come into relationship with God for all of life and that the love of God comes into your life in such a way that it transforms you and it fortifies you greater than any other love that you can experience. Beginning with the fact that you're forgiven. For beginning with the fact that you are loved by God in ways that you have never experienced love ever in this life. That you, that you are chosen by God, that you are sacrificed for by that God in, in such a way that it completely melts you and changes the way that you live and the way that you think about life because of the way that you have been embraced in a forever relationship with God. If that describes you tonight, then we want you to come down and talk to these shepherds as we stand and praise God together.